Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Rupesh is here again. You know, on this podcast, we've talked about the fourth industrial revolution. We've talked about this topic because we know it's happening right now. It's so disruptive. We know the economy is going to transform. We know our politics is probably going to transform. Everything is moving and shifting right now. Our economy right now is largely based on a capitalistic society. And so we have a guest that's really timely that we can hopefully talk to about this and maybe we can tie this into the fourth industrial revolution and see how the economy is shifting and maybe there needs to be a pivot towards how it can help more people or maybe there's there's some real benefits to capitalism. We're going to start to uncover some of this with our next guest. Kit Webster has joined us. He's written a book called Capitalism is Past. It's sell by, sell by date. Kit, welcome to Two Nobodies. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us on a weekend always not the not the best time to record for people but i appreciate your time glad to be here thanks kit so before we get into your book it's always nice to get to know people tell us a little bit about yourself and um, maybe how you kind of came to the book but just more about yourself first so the audience has a sense of who you are well i'm uh i live in austin texas in the u.s uh married with uh, uh two two we've had two sons um, I have a master's in electrical engineering degree, and I'm also a certified public accountant. I've spent my, uh, or chartered accountant for uh, European yeah. and other audiences. Um, I have uh, I, I have a fascination, basically, with human nature. So I covered the technical mm. parts of, of my life with my electrical engineering degree. But I wanted to understand more about the crazy human beings. And so I've mm. spent decades reading history, philosophy, religion, psychology, uh, in an attempt to try to figure out the way humans behave, the way history progresses, uh, particularly uh, cycles. And as a result of that, in um, early 1990s, Mm. I started putting all this together and creating a view of the future. And the future was that the world in the United States in particular was going to reach a crisis in the early 2000s. Mm. <clears throat> and that, that, that crisis would be multidimensional because all things really are connected. And I began developing those concepts. And I've been developing them now since then. And they've uh, they've evolved. Uh, later in the 1990s, I read the book, The Fourth Turning, and okay. uh, by Strauss and Howe. It had a huge effect on me. They, uh, they are discussing some of the same things I'm discussing. They discuss them in terms of generations, I think, like millennials and boomers, and I don't, mm. I don't do that. But their basic thought and my thought is that we we take the world too far, we go too far, we take everything to extremes, and then there has to be a period where there's a sorting out and a rebuilding mm -hmm. uh, and a restructuring of not only mm -hmm. the minor things of life, but the culture and the economy as well. And so I've been developing those uh, along the way. I... Um, a little bit strange. I write books to understand what I think. And so uh, the great financial crisis occurred and I wrote a book, not, yeah. not for publication, on the great financial crisis so I could understand it fundamentally, not the, mm. not the sound bites, not the, the popular stuff, but what really went on under the covers. Uh, then I got to global warming. I did the same thing. I wrote a book mm. on global warming. Again, uh, I think global warming has gotten to be so politically correct it's right. really hard to find the truth. So I went digging. Yeah. I went digging for it. Everything from conservative to liberal to uh, outrageous. Uh, lots and lots of scientific papers. Lots and lots of books. And I came to my views on global warming. 
as part of that, um, I kept on running into this. I kept on saying, well, there's other things we need to deal with, but here's global warming. There are other right. things we need to deal with. but he, And sooner or later, I had to deal with those other things. And I mm. came to the conclusion that global warming was a symptom of a deeper problem. And that mm. deeper problem is sustainability. Mm. So then why are we now not? So we're, we're going to get to the end of the progression here. Yeah, yeah. Why are we not sustainable? It's because fundamentally the capitalism has been too successful. It has been so mm. successful in allowing us to uh, create humans and goods and to exploit the earth's resources that we're now to the point that we're unsustainable. Right. Hence the book. I want to get I want to get into all of that. But before you said something interesting, you said, you know, as these kind of crises or events have unfolded for yourself, you chose to write them down to write a book now these were for yourself i imagine or were these did you publish these the first two books were not published and of course i have published this book on capitalism yeah so interesting like it, like that's an interesting way for you to process things like this need to 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 write it down and to dig deep and to cover it. like most people might just read about it and hold it in their head but you needed to write a book that's <laughs> i think that's kind of interesting well it's a little strange but it's because if you're just talking or if you're uh, even if you're thinking, it's easy to hand wave. It's easy to say, well, yeah. of course we can handle this or this is easy or of course humans will behave this way. And what, right. you, and what you really need to do is say, OK, what, why? What's going to cause that? Where did it come from? How is it manifesting itself now? How is it probably going to manifest itself in the future? And so yeah. it's it's a way for me to really take all the threads and dig down. This book that I'm publishing now on capitalism has, I don't know how many now, it's like 300 footnotes. The mm. point being that it's based on data. It's based on research. Mm. It's not based on, oh, I'm a capitalist. I'm a socialist. I'm from right. the United States. Of course, things are going to be right. great. No, no, no. We have to decide. Yeah. What are the strengths and weaknesses? And really, really importantly, what are the trade-offs? Yeah. Talking about like sustainability and, and growth, I mean, Austin is, is really booming these days. Like what, what are your feelings on how quickly Austin is growing and, and is, it, is it sustainable? And are people who have been there for such a long time appreciating this amount of growth or are people kind of like, hold on a second, this is a little too fast? Trade-offs, trade-offs, trade-offs. So I got, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we got here in 1984. Okay. And so it was a it was literally a backwater. It had the uh, it, it has a state capital, of course, in the University yeah. of Texas, yeah. and that was about it. It yeah. was a it was a little bitty sleepy town, uh, for the United States, very liberal hippie place. Mm. And so over the, the the decades that I've been here, it's exploded. It's now now for in some contexts like uh, India and China, this isn't particularly remarkable. But for mm. the United States, it now has over a million people. And it's uh, it's becoming expensive to live here. Mm. Um, I, I take a different view on all this. I think that the growth is good and bad. We've got crowding. We've got homelessness. Uh, we've got crime. Uh, we've got opportunities. We've got arts. We've got uh, things that, that weren't available when you don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. The fundamental issue, looking at Austin from my viewpoint, from the sustainability viewpoint, from the capitalist viewpoint, we don't have enough water. Mm. And nobody talks about it. And right. what we're right on the edge of the plains and the desert. And mm -hmm. we're saved because we're also close to the Gulf of Mexico in the mm -hmm. Gulf of California, so moisture can come in here, and mm -hmm. and and it's so it's okay. But what happens is every five years or decade we have these uh, pretty significant droughts, and mm -hmm. what happens is we we begin to run out of water. Well, the last one was several years ago, and we ran out of water. We've got you know a hundred thousand more people now, and yes. and and that's the issue with Austin. Is that, to me that's 
the you, you can talk about growth, you can talk about crime, you mm-hmm. can talk, but it's basically not a sustainable place because it doesn't have sufficient water. Yeah, and so are they putting doing? What are they doing about nothing. that? Like, are they nothing? Because along, am I wrong to say along the southern most parts of like that's definitely the southwest of the United States, but southern parts of the United States access to water is pretty limited these days, right? It's limited for a whole list of reasons. Uh, one is yeah. there's a huge drought going on now in the yeah. western and southwestern United States. It's gotten to us. We're in mild drought. Uh, yeah. Rain's coming this weekend, so that's good. <laughs> uh, but uh, California, Nevada, uh, th- these places are in extreme drought. The other problem yeah. is that we're using water in such a way that we're running out. Mighty rivers like the Colorado don't reach the sea anymore. We use it all up before it gets to the sea. So mm-hmm. we did that before the drought. And now what the do- drought is doing is making that even worse. Yeah. A problem that we've got that is shared by India, for example, is that a lot of our water comes from aquifers. Mm. And aquifers are basically, you can they're not really, but you can think of them as underground lakes that have formed over the millennia as glaciers melted and rain falls. Right. Well, we're draining those lakes faster than the rainfall is putting it back in. So mm-hmm. we're basically eating our seed corn so that the, the vast Midwest, which is the breadbasket of the United States and in many mm-hmm. ways of the world, uh, is uh, based on these aquifers, and and they are running out. So this gets back to this whole sustainability thing, and water is absolutely critical. Yeah. I saw, um, I don't know if it was a documentary or something, that kind of showed um, some uh, migration projections where it showed the people, so, folks in the southern United States will start to slowly over time migrate north because, you know, as you like, especially around the Great Lakes, because there's such a strong water source there, um, that that might happen over time because of this water crisis. And that's just, that's just scary, <laughs> especially for us folks, us folks in Canada. We, we don't know if we want that many people covered up, but um, yeah, it's, uh, that's just another, another challenge for sure. Um, yeah, very, very interesting how you got, how you got to that book. So what's, what is the the essential essence of this book like what's the what's the message that you're trying to get across and i want to uh, we'll dig into it but i'm just curious sort of what when you started this book what were you what were you searching for and then what did what did what was the essence of it at the end i guess well i wasn't searching for anything i was okay. on a journey and i was going to let the journey unfold i, I wanted yeah. to come in with with as few biases as it's humanly possible and then let the data and the facts take me somewhere and yeah. create threads that I could I could go down. And so uh, over the years, as I did the research and the reading and the thinking, uh, I did that. I explored. And it, it boils down to two sound bites, really. Uh, the first sound bite is that capitalism is past its sell-by date. And the second sound bite is that green growth is an oxymoron. Green growth is an oxymoron. Okay. Let's start with the first one. What does that mean? It's past its sell-by date. Capitalism is fantastic. Um, I, I, I'm not here to bury capitalism. I'm here mm-hmm. to describe uh, what its uh, what its impacts are. Yeah. And so, what what capitalism is really good at is creating material growth. It's really really good at discovering prices, creating competition, uh, yielding profits. And if you take a look at the uh, at the material well-being of the human race since the 1800s, since the, the uh, Industrial Revolution, it just goes straight up. It is mm-hmm. astounding. Mm-hmm. And that is really, really good. And it's been uh, because of capitalism and free markets. Now, everything has trade-offs. Capitalism has downsides. We can talk about them, inequality, uh, all uh recessions and all kinds of issues come along with capitalism. But but if what you want is material prosperity for most people, uh, the poor in the United States live better than 
three quarters of the world. I mean, mm. it, it's too bad that they are poor in the United States, but they are relatively well off. Once you take your focus off the Western world and think about humans as a whole, and that's one of the things I had to do when I when I started thinking about this. So you you wind up with the fact that you know, one of my fundamental theses is that uh, humans take all trends too far. Hmm. They start off with a, a kernel of, of truth and, and they build on it and they build on it, but they're looking for growth. They're looking for novelty. They're looking for new things all right. the time. And what you do is you wind up running off at the end. And, and uh, my classic on this is uh, maybe female bathing suits where mm. in 1900 they were covered from head to toe and now yeah. you've got thongs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, that that's not necessarily a crisis for humanity, but it's, an, it's a trivial illustration of how we take things. And what capitalism has done is it's gotten us to a, a good place and then it's gone too far. What it's done is it's gotten us to where we've have a, particularly us in the in the West, and, and that's where capitalism has been most effective. Although now, capitalism with Chinese characteristics and other mm -hmm. things, mm -hmm. um, we, we have incredible lives. But now, what we've done is we are consuming. There are too many of us consuming too much stuff mm -hmm. to the point that we've become unsustainable, right. which means that. It's going to stop, and it could be pretty ugly when it's – well, I think it's already stopping, but it's going to get uglier because of that. So mm -hmm. that's what I mean when I say capitalism is past its sell-by date. It's like a, a bottle of milk. It, it's bottle of milk's, Bottles of milk are great and until a month later when it's not so good anymore. And you're talking about human nature. I mean, you, you, are you saying, like, is it greed that's really contributed to this, you know, this constant progression where we just have no end to this? And like you said, it's kind of it's gone, it's past its sell-by date. Is is that the main uh, human nature characteristic that you're talking about, or is it more than, more than that? Human nature is really complex. And in the introduction to my book, I list – I, I produce a list of laws that I've come up with, with quotation marks around laws, of course, that I think describe human nature, because I believe everything is a reflection of human nature. Mm. There are no capitalists. There are no socialists. There are no corporations. What there are is reflections of bits and pieces of human nature coming back. It's very union in that, in, in that way. And so the, 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 Capitalism is not just greed, and it's not just hedonism. It's uh, wanting good stuff. It's wanting a pleasant life. It's wanting health. It's wanting happiness. It's wanting to support our families. It's, and so what happens is that capitalism enables us to do all these kinds of things. And so at, at base... It's a good thing because it allows us education. It allows us access to the arts. Right. It allows us travel uh, and things that, that humans just haven't had and most humans today don't have. But it's got its downsides. And human nature has its downsides. And so the idea of a good life leads to greed more mm. more. Uh, if you've seen uh, Russian yachts are, mm -hmm. are, are not in... Uh, not in favor these days, but if you've taken a look at at, at these things, these like are a football field, yeah, pretty amazing things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the overconsumption piece is like, have we set up systems in place um, over time that has kind of just facilitated this overconsumption? Like, what what c continues to? Because I think, I, well, I don't know. This is just anecdotal, but it seems like there's a little bit more consciousness around our consumption perhaps growing. But I always, I also just wonder if the systems, the underlying fundamental systems in place just facilitate that overconsumption. Absolutely. We have a culture that assumes growth. You know, humans existed up until, let's just say 1800 for, it, the, the statement's a complete overstatement. But humans existed for whatever, 300,000 years with essentially no growth. 
And then we had this ex- exponential growth, and the exponential growth has led us to expect it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, our children are going to be better off than we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have a, a, a new iPhone every year, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to get bigger houses. We're going to have multiple uh, bathrooms. The bathrooms are going to be the size of old living rooms. <laughs> Excuse me, of old living rooms. Yeah. And it's just this whole expansion. The way I, I put it is that one is next to two, and then two is next to three. And three yeah. becomes the standard, and so we go to four. And this is also the trend that leads you to too much and the trend that leads uh, where we overshoot basically everything. But in this case, sustainability. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if, um, and I don't know in your research, if outside of, you know, the Western part, the Western world, those countries that are still, you know, emerging, like those emerging economies, if they have the same kind of perception of what growth looks like as to what we have, I guess. They've got American television and, um, uh, so what they do, what they see is a refrigerator that's yeah. stocked with food. It's what? <laughs> and you turn on a, a spigot and you get water and somebody puts a cup under it and drinks it. You go into the bathroom and you flush and it, it goes away. These are astounding things that we take for granted. granted. Yeah, for sure. And so what happens is that it... it other people don't want to be Westerners. I'm not saying that. Um, our, our culture, we've got a lot of downsides. Mm-hmm. People are very proud to be Africans, mm-hmm. to be Kenyans. Mm-hmm. They're proud to be Indians and Chinese. That's all great. And they're going to be doing things differently. And they're not going to be doing the th- things the way the Canadians or Americans yeah. do. But what they want is the same thing. They want a good life. They want a healthy life. They want to live to 70 or 80. They want to not have these terrible diseases. They want their children to prosper. They want education. They want to read books. And so they don't, they may think in terms of iPhones, but if you, I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but this, this psychologist Maslow put together a pyramid that he called his hierarchy of needs. And he says, humans have to take care of survival first. And then they layer on layers and layers and layers until you get to self-actualization. Now, people down at the survival level can't even think about going to a Broadway play. Right. Okay. They can't think of eating at Nobu. Yeah. It's just not there. But what they can do is think about having clean drinking mm-hmm. water. They can think about having a motorbike and having gas- gasoline or, or whatever powers their motorbike uh, actually available to them. And those are the kinds. Of, so it's that kind of growth that they're looking for. And it's not necessarily our growth. But what they see when they look at American or Canadian mm-hmm. TV is this is possible. Humans have done this. And so I can do this and I want this. Yeah. I mean, that's probably uh, for sure. That's a natural thing. I know um, my family, I have some family in India and I know that they've told me that, you know, there's a lot of infiltration of a lot of American fast food and all that. And some of the, the original diets in India are getting lost, right? Like a lot, a lot, and there people are going to KSC and McDonald's more regularly. More people are working now, both, both men and women or both, uh, you know, everyone in the household is working. So there's not enough time now to, to make those traditional meals. And so now kids are also suffering as a result of it. Obesity levels are going up. It's, it's kind of, kind of wild. Um, yeah, it, it when you when you approach this book, was there ever a need to now? You know, obviously people talk about capitalism, and then the obvious is the other side is of socialism. Like, was there a need to kind of explore on that end, and whether that is in any way growing? Um, you know, like whether people want that in our economy going forward. I mean, we're seeing that there's always that tension on the political side of things. But was there ever a need to kind of focus on? socialism at all absolutely yeah i i think there are two or three things to emphasize here one is that 
we're becoming socialist, uh, and Canada is much more socialist than the United States, because what we've done is we've mitigated some parts of capitalism by redistributing goodies to people, uh, welfare, Medicare, mm-hmm. uh, so- social health, uh, aid for children, uh, but, but also national highways, mm-hmm. the space program. There are lots of things where uh, we've gone outside the boundaries of, of strict capitalism, yeah. and we're becoming more and more socialistic, where today I think that measured by uh, proportion of, the, of expenditures by the government, Denmark, I think, is the most yeah. socialistic yeah. country yeah. in the West. Okay, so it's a natural progression, and the question becomes, you've got capitalism and it's got abuses. You've got socialism with weaknesses. Um, socialists want growth too. They want their kids to have good things. And and so what happens is there's a tendency to try to find the best of each thing and and maybe mitigate that weakness and, and create socialism. Socialism is perfectly fine by me. It's a valid system. Humans get to organize themselves any way they want. Uh, this isn't and I'm not idealistic in this. Uh, I've, I read a lot of history. I've seen how various societies have organized themselves. Uh, and most often in terms of dictatorships, actually, it's just completely overwhelming uh, how, how authoritarian uh, humans have, have been. But that's off the subject. Um, socialism's okay. But what you have to do is understand the trade-offs and look them squarely in the eye and say, yeah, that's okay with me. I'm going to be socialistic so I can I, I can have some goodies, but I can't have many and I can't grow much. Uh, and the only way I can grow more is to become more capitalistic mm. so I can have more stuff to redistribute. And that's an irony. Capitalism is becoming more socialistic in order to be more fair and socialism it needs to be more capitalistic in order to have the goodies totally. to redistribute. It's a really complex uh, concept. So I, I, I definitely look at, at, at socialism because when you start thinking about the future, uh, what you see is – so we, we, there, there's one, – one of my laws, and, and again, it's got quotation marks around it, is that there's a social equivalent – to, to Newton's physical law that says for mm-hmm. every action, there's an equal mm-hmm. and opposite reaction. For every social movement, there's an equal and opposite pressure back from another social movement. So as capitalism becomes assistant, uh, ascendant, other things, including anarchy, but primarily socialism, are going to start pushing back. And we're seeing that now with the younger generations, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, sort of saying, I see all this bad stuff from capitalism. Where can I go? And so I'm going to look at socialism. And maybe they're doing a little bit idealistically without looking at the at the yeah. downsides. But it's not a bad, it's not a stupid question. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting how people just go to one extreme or the other. I mean, it's, I always just look at it as there's always, there's a role of government in certain situations. I mean, um, the American, like the American military, has contributed so much to innovation, but that required government spending to to drive that innovation, right? And and that that's you know that's government investments there. Governments have a role to play. I mean, you wrote your was this book written? It would have been written during the pandemic, right? Yeah, it came out last. Uh, what, yeah, November. so I mean. You know, I think in the early days of of the pandemic, there was a lot of people saw there was a good role and value of government to play. Now people are, it's a little bit more of a controversial question, I suppose. But you know, governments uh, there there is value, right? Uh, absolutely, for for government investment to happen, and it's interesting how people can just go to one side or the other. Um, and so I was gonna to that though, like as you're the the pandemic itself and. And how you approached this book, did it did that influence your thinking at all? Well, the, the pandemic itself, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it. In one way, no. Uh, but in another way, it, it, it's an example of the expressions of human nature where we have lockdowns mm-hmm. and vaccines mm-hmm. and you're infringing all my liberties and 
and, and it's too dangerous. And uh, all of the, it, to, to me, the fascinating thing about the pandemic was the positions people were taking and the uh, the interactions and the, the opposition that arose. You know, I'm not going to wear a mask. I mean, I you, you wear yeah. a mask, but you're crazy. Uh, or I'm wearing a mask mm-hmm. and you're crazy. Um, nobody stopped to sit down and say, well, what's the evidence and what's the harm? And But it becomes emotional. And in particular in the United States, positions now get attached to political mm-hmm. parties. And so if you're one political party, you don't wear a mask. Mm-hmm. And if you're another political party, you wear a mask as a badge mm-hmm. of honor, regardless of whether yeah. it's a good yeah. idea. And uh, so it's, it, to me, it's, uh, it, the, the fascinating piece is the human interaction, the tribalism, and those kinds of things. In terms of did it contribute anything interesting that I would have found interesting to my book, I, I don't yeah. think much. Yeah, no, I, I wonder, I mean, you, we see the political tensions within the pandemic, you know, it's it's bleeded into it. It's bled into society. And I just wasn't sure how it's affecting people's perceptions of how the economy and the economic model that we currently have, how that should move forward, right? Because you you see this push for you know obviously businesses have suffered a great deal and and businesses a lot more for the most part probably want all these restrictions gone and and so that they can just operate and we've seen you know Elon Musk is that example right of of what happened with Tesla and he's just like. I'm going to have my workers just, you know, continue to work and I don't really care what you kind of are saying. And so really pushing that free market mentality and, and less restriction. So I just, I guess I kind of just wondered if you, if you had any thoughts about how the pandemic has kind of shaped people's views of capitalism or so, socialism when it comes to the economy. So let me paint it with a broader yeah. brush, I think, cause that's a good, cause that's a good question. Um, my fundamental thesis is that we're now under stress because we're coming apart. And we're coming apart because of economic stresses that have nothing to do with the pandemic, although I'll mm. modify that in just a minute. Uh, this was my thesis, my views, my predictions occur pr- pandemic okay. or not. So what you've got is a system, and, and again, I'm going to be yeah. U.S.-centric here for a minute, uh, where we've got opioid deaths, we uh, elect Donald Trump. Uh, Bernie Sanders has mm-hmm. a huge following. Um, we're uh, divisive. We have Black Lives Matter. We mm-hmm. have riots in the streets. This is not symptomatic of a stable system. So you've got this system that is becoming more fragile, and then you hit it with yeah. a pandemic. And what you do is you stress Expose it even it. more. And you ex- yeah. you expose it. Uh, it's the old uh, uh, deal is that you find out who's, when the tide goes out, you find yeah. out who's <laughs> swimming naked, right? And uh, it's a, a Warren Buffett yeah. thing, I think. Anyway, so wh- what you wind up with is a stress on a system. And humans need mm. scapegoats. So who's the scapegoat going to be? Well, I'm, I, I did not vote for Trump. Uh, but I'm highly critical mm. of, of Biden. Uh, so he, he he works for me. But capitalism is a, a great scapegoat because it, it's because the, the corporations are doing this. It's because capitalism is doing this. It's because the system is unfair and we need more fairness. And uh, and so what's happening, in, and now we're stressed because of incomes and and, and lockdowns and those kinds of things. And I think, let me take it one step further. I think this whole Ukraine thing, I mean, it's just piling mm-hmm. on, right? I mean, because what's happening is we're now giving up energy security and food security. And over the six, next six to 12 months, all yeah. hell's going to break loose. And there are going to be a lot of scapegoats for that. And this is human nature. And it's going to be, it's always the government, it's always capitalism. And it's always the other uh, in terms of maybe whoever the other is in terms of a political party, a race, an ethnic group or whatever. These are your classic scapegoats. And so there will be increased stress on us because of these trends that were already in motion. They're mm. going to happen anyway. 
But the pandemic and then Russia, Ukraine are just stressing the system uh, and, and going to create untold. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, I mean, you, you started off uh, this part of the conversation saying, you know, you're focusing on the United States. All those things, Kit, are are prevalent in Canada as well and increasingly prevalent. You know, it's it's there's a little bit of mirroring that happens sometimes. Sometimes there's a little bit of a late reaction. Uh, you know, I forget how, I think uh, Justin Trudeau, I can't remember how he said it. Essentially, if you guys get sick, then we cough like shortly after or something like that. But um, those 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 things uh, come to us as well. Um, the the scapegoating of capitalism is interesting because I mean I think for sure there's you know there I, as I'm sure, I know you've recognized like there there are some issues there and and nowadays sometimes it seems like corporations aren't always pursuing value. You know there's uh, it's 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 always with the bottom line and it's and and as if you're a publicly traded company. I mean that's your Onus to your shareholders as it should be, but I mean, those capitalists, those companies that are pursuing value. I mean, there's something good to obviously say about those companies, but there are also a lot of companies that are just purely in it at all costs for the bottom line, the profit. Where there may not be adding value to society, but maybe adding value to, you know, some shareholders, and that's about it. And so I, I guess I want to just maybe slightly pivot to this this. I don't know if it's an emerging concept or I'm hearing more about it. It's just like this conscious capitalism, social capitalism, that sort of thing. What's, is that, is that actually, is that actually possible? When I was, uh, when I was going through my biography, I omitted uh, what may or may not be a key part. And that is I've spent my whole life as uh, a C-level mm. executive, a uh, chief executive officer, president, mm. or chief financial officer of privately held mm. and publicly held companies. I've been a free market capitalist mm. uh, my entire life, and I've seen capitalism from the inside. I've uh, grown companies. I've been part of startups. I've raised money mm. on Wall Street. And uh, so I'm viewing this whole process as a what I call a recovering capitalist. Um Capitalism has evolved mightily over the years. The capitalism of Karl Marx and mm. Charles Dickens, the sweat houses, working uh, six days a week uh, with no uh, benefits mm -hmm. whatsoever. You don't work, you don't get money. Uh, all those things, uh, capitalism mm -hmm. has evolved. And it's evolved because the culture has demanded that it evolve. And so we have benefits mm -hmm. now. We have vacations. Uh, we have uh, a lot of things that that, that, that that corporations do that's not pure capitalism. And I want to make a point real quick yeah. before I get back to your question. And that is corporations aren't necessarily mm -hmm. capitalistic. One of the key characteristics of capitalism is competition. Com uh, corporations don't like competition. And so what you see is maneuvering by particularly large com uh, companies to eliminate competition. This mm -hmm. is part of Google. This is part of Facebook. So I just want to note that uh, capitalism can exist without the corporation, but the corporation provides a very nice vehicle to do capitalism, but there mm -hmm. are some issues there. Uh, so capitalism, yeah. Capitalism can continue to evolve. The question is, what do you want? These, this gets back to, to my fundamental mm. trade-offs, trade-offs, trade-offs. Capitalism has created all of this material wealth and prosperity and increased longevity and ability to avoid disease. Uh, the, the, the vaccines for the virus are just, yeah. just miracles. And... Uh, it's all because capitalism exists. We have this knowledge base, this capital base. We have all these machines and things that can, and all this knowledge that can do things. Anything you do to lower the profitability, this yeah, is yeah, an overstatement yeah. that's not entirely true, but go with me. Anything you do to lower the, cap the profitability of capitalism lowers its ability to yield this material 
growth. Now, of course, in writing my book, I'm saying that's a good thing. But mm-hmm. let's go with it for a minute. So if you want sustainable capitalism, if you want uh, uh, conscious capitalism, if you want capitalism to devote some of its profits and capital to things that aren't, it doesn't reinvest back into people or machinery or equipment, then mm. you're going to get less. If that's okay, go for it. Because as I said earlier, this is about, um, uh, this is, humans can organize themselves in any way they want. They can have any kind of capitalism that they want. There's just trade-offs. And so you, you can get, I was asked at one time, what's going to cause this change? What's going to get us to conscious capitalism? And the answer is that, it, it, to me, it's complicated, and it's also as simple as consumers demand it. Corporations are, respond to their shareholders. They respond to their managers because mm-hmm. managers want to make their money. But fundamentally, if they don't provide the goods that the customers want, and that's goods not only just the thing, but all the stuff, mm-hmm. the aura around the thing, then the customers are going to go somewhere else. So conscious capitalism can be uh, a competitive advantage, and that's kind of what we're going to now. We're in this early stage where consumers are saying, okay, I hear you. I want, I want mm. to address global warming and that kind of stuff. Make me feel good. And the corporation saying, okay, greenwash, greenwash. And mm. we're not getting anywhere. But maybe this is the first, maybe this is a necessary first step that gets us to the next step that gets us to the next step. And if we are serious about conscious capitalism, we can get conscious capitalism. My assertion is that we're, not, we're just not serious. Um, you said if people want it, like that's what that's the way capitalism will kind of shape. But isn't the, like the deck kind of sta- like we kind of talked about the underlying system is facilitates a certain model of, of capitalism. Like isn't the deck kind of stacked against people to to think in a more sustainable way? Like you know, people might want it, but at the end of the day, depending on maybe where you are in that little triangle model, you might not have the mental capacity to really think about something that's maybe more sustainable because price is an influence or something, right? And so the system seems always stacked against pushing towards the the the, the lowest price possible. And, and how are people supposed to be even think about, you know, uh, conscious consumerism? Um, because it seems like everything is just about, you know, something that's cheap and something that they can afford really quickly. And it's just, you might want to, but then everything in your face is telling you just to buy, buy, buy. And, you know, the system has been constructed to enhance and continue the system. So all the structures are in place. The institutions are in place. The laws are in place. The culture is in place. We think about growth. We think about these things. It's part of the, you know, it's the old issue of asking a fish about water and he says, what's water? Well, it's the water we swim in. And so your point is is really important. I think there are two points, and this is the first one. And that is we're swimming in the water and changing it is going to be extraordinarily difficult. The second is that most people live their lives from day to day and you're, you know, you made the point. What's the price? How am I going to, how mm-hmm. am I going to make it to the next paycheck? What am I going to do when the price of gas goes up? Another thing that's going to sound a little brutal, but if you read my book, it's unavoidable. And one of my laws of life is that half of humanity has an IQ of under a hundred. What that means, it's mm. descriptive. It's not judgmental. It's just the way the world is. Well, what that means is that 80%, it gets more complicated, sure, yeah. so I'm going to jump to the end, but 80% or more of people just don't think conceptually or analytically. It's not in their genes. It's, they weren't educated that way. It's some combination right. of nature and nurture. So this has to be carried forward by a minority. But, of course, all change is. All change comes from mm-hmm. what? 
10%, 20% of the population. Revolutions right. come from 10 to 20% of the population. What the revolution needs is not so much for the people to support it mm. as to not get in the way. And so the idea is to get 50, 60% of the people to say, eh, okay. The problem, what we're getting now is more and more support. And what you're seeing is 60, 70% of Americans uh, support uh, uh, attacking global warming. But when you dig into it and you say, okay, great. So how yep. much will you pay every month to fight global warming? And the answer yeah, is yeah. maybe $25. So it's a, yep. it's a mile wide and an inch thick. And what's necessary is to continue to uh, have that grow. But to do that, people are going to have to see a benefit for them. And right now, the benefit that's being preached is we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. do this or we're all going to die. And many people just react. Yeah, it's say, too big of a, it's too big of a problem for me, right? I mean, that's just that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Too, yeah, yeah, yeah. too big, too big. You know, I, I got this. Yeah. I, I got to get my kid in school. I got a, I got a doctor's appointment. Ain't no big death. Yeah. Wait, what there's the a, are you um, you, you're in Austin and there's a, a professor there. Her name is Catherine Hayhoe. I don't know if you know who she is. She's at the University of Austin. Uh, no. I think at the University no. of Texas. Um, and she wrote this book called Saving Us. And she really digs into like the psychology and, and the social thinking around climate change. And yeah, that's a, a key facet of it. I definitely encourage folks to look into that as well. Um, yeah, I was, where was I going to go with this? Um, oh, I was going to go with, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, around just ec economic growth and in, in, in general, like we're, we're always focused, like our happiness seems to like, you know, every time there's an election, it's always, the economy is always at the top of the, the ballot. We always use these common metrics, GDP growth, all this kind of stuff, right? Like that to me also just facilitates this narrative of we always have to keep growing. Like I feel like we need a different kind of set of metrics. I mean, I'm, this is not a, a lot of people have talked about this, but like why aren't we focusing on something like the happiness index or something as a as like have you have you do, do you go into that into your book or do you have you thought about that as far as how we measure how we need to measure our growth going forward and less being about actual production and more about a more holistic set of metrics or, or um, things that we talk about, like happiness, for instance, which incorporates not only the economy, but incorporates, um, you know, our social, certain social factors, the political factors, like all kinds of different things. But I just, I just wonder, like how, in terms of how we move forward, I think the way we talk about this too, and the way we evaluate our our happiness and our economic growth is also a part of it. Extremely important. Uh, the, if, if, if the economy can't be, be robust, and at the end we can, uh, at some point we can talk about the need to reduce mm -hmm. population and consumption. But what that means is we have to focus on something else. And so when you read the literature, people talk mm -hmm. about social values and all these other kinds of things. In my book, I, I look at, at two measures, there's something called a genuine mm. uh, progress indicator, which is an attempt to take all the good things and all the bad things and create an index out of it. Now, that's impossible, yeah. but they worked on it. And they came up with the genuine progress indicator that describes, okay, we've got growth and we've got prosperity and longevity and we've got pollution and yeah. we've got uh, yeah. uh, waste and we've got crime. And so you mix all that together and you weight it and what do you come up with? And what you come up with is that, uh, again, uh, Western countries uh, like Canada and the United States peaked in their genuine mm. progress in the 1970s. In other words, by that indicator, things have been getting worse uh, on on net, on average. Now, obviously, if you're a Russian oligarch, maybe not so bad. But on net, on average, uh, our situation has been deteriorating. Uh, the second thing is that there are various happiness indexes out there that yeah, you can yeah, yeah. Google and take a look at. 
and happiness for the United States peaked, huh. in, peaked in the 1950s. And so the issue becomes, when you start talking about this deterioration, um, what you see is that things are getting worse around the edges, and we're feeling it. We're feeling, we're feeling kind of assaulted, kind of depressed, because we're not, we have this wealth, but we don't feel as good. I understand that. I'm an old guy. I look back at, at how mm. my life was in the '60s and how it is now, and I, boy, have I got more stuff now. And I have traveled the world, and it has been an exciting life. But when I look around me, the '60s before the revolutions and stuff was just a very yeah. satisfactory, yeah. nice time. You know, there wasn't all this fractionalist we didn't agree with each other but it wasn't life or death it wasn't you know politicians actually got along and enacted laws and it was it was a completely different world and when i look at those two pictures i, I see the strengths and weaknesses of, of what's happened so we have to do that but again we're swimming in the water of growth is good i want more i want another iphone next year i want more memory on my computer I want mm -hmm. uh, uh, my downloads faster. I want fast fashion. Uh, and that's just, I want more streaming services. And that's, it's ingrained in us. And it's just a bad habit, like whatever bad habit, smoking or whatever you want to, you just, you've got it. Yep. It's really hard to get rid of, yeah. but you've really got to get rid of Are there any disruptions that are happening right now that you feel are maybe contributing in a positive way to sustainability and growth and, and, you know, conscious capitalism. Basically, no, okay. I think everything's going in the wrong direction, but I think you made, a, I think you made a good point earlier where you said, you know, people are starting to think about this more and younger generations are thinking about it more. So what I'm seeing in terms of, Mm -hmm. the culture in terms of the zeitgeist is that people are, it, it's become a topic of conversation that it wasn't before in terms of momentum, in terms of the way the world is actually going in terms of uh, resources and pollution and, and those kinds of things. I think not, but in terms of attitudes around the ages, I think, I think yes. And what's going to happen you know, I speaking of the 60s, um, one of the things that, that I predicted uh, back in the 60s was right. that marijuana was going to become legal. And the reason it was going to become legal was just simply that it was a thing in the 60s and those people were going to get old and it wouldn't mm -hmm. have the taboo it had back in the 60s. And so therefore it would be there. Well, this is a, a, another analogy of young people are thinking these thoughts, and right now they're at the edge. But when they become in their 40s, 50s, yeah. and 60s, and they become to run the world, it's going to color the way sure. they think about making decisions. Yeah. And that Sorry about that, if you hear the knocking. My, my daughter is kind of, my four-year-old daughter is kind of wandering around, so I think she wants to get in here, so I apologize for that. Um, no, that's, uh, yeah. I, I, the, you know, we're, I'm looking at the time, and just there's one other question I wanted to ask you, Kate, was around, um, you know, just investing. If people can invest in a certain way that's a little bit more um, consciously, I guess, and whether you think there's any benefit or merit there. Well, I'm going to be very explicit to start off with and say that ESG yeah. and greenwashing okay. is garbage. Okay. It's, it's virtue signaling. It's a short-term response to this kind of groundswell that's occurring again it's probably a good first step but it's it, it's basically not not getting us anywhere you you if you take a look at the companies that esg funds invest in they're the same as high growth funds it's just they just call themselves esg so the question becomes how do you invest for a future and, and so I'm, I'm looking at a revolution. I'm looking at a revolution in institutions. I'm looking at a revolution in culture. And so therefore, I think that investing requires 
uh, in my mind, I'm not an investment advisor. It, this is worth exactly what you're paying for it. But what what my view is, is that you need optionality. You need to be thinking not long term. You need the ability to to look at a trend, take advantage of it, and pivot, and maybe even pivot 180 degrees. So we're in a time when uh, energy is just going to be, uh, I, I think, for the next year or so anyway, and probably longer, we're going to be desperate for energy. We're going to be desperate for every drop of oil we can find. And so that's to me, that's investable. Now, if your horizon of investing is 10 years or, or something, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. So I think cash, optionality, of course, cash is a problem because of inflation. But having optionality of investing and pivoting is going to be really important. I think that environmentalism is going to be overwhelmed in the short term by this emergency that we're going to have, this food and energy emergency. We've already seen it happen, uh, and it, it's only going to get worse. And so what's going to happen is we're going to come down Maslow's hierarchy and say, how do we heat our homes during the winter, not what plays can we go to, and how can we help the, the, uh, the, the, the ecosystem. And then as we sort this out, and hopefully we will, we can go back to yeah, helping out that's, the ecosystem. Uh, no, that's a, that's a fantastic answer. Okay, Kate. Well, I just want to pivot now just to our final two questions that we ask all of our guests. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, our our first question is our five for dinner question. Dead or alive, who are five people that you'd want to have a meal with? I mean, if you want to have them together, great. Uh, if you want to have them separately, be curious about that too. But who would those five people be? I'll start with Jesus. Um, I'm not a Christian. I'm an agnostic. No. Uh, but I've been raised in the Christian tradition and I have spent a lot of time on religion and I, I just like to sit down with him and go through all the theological issues why yeah. why why is there evil in the world tell me about the afterlife uh, Paul doesn't like homosexuals what do you think uh, and, and just understand all the questions that have have been a part of my Christian background uh, the second one is also religious and that's the Buddha uh, Gautama. Mm. Uh, what a wise person. Mm -hmm. And I, what I'd say to him is you've had 2,700 years now to look <laughs> at how all this is unfolding. Uh, yeah. Tell me, what do you change? Now you've got your, your the eightfold way and all the things that, that, that you, you've got. Is there a ninefold now? Uh, do you have a different view? And I, I don't want to harp on homosexuals. I'm, I'm good with homosexuals and that, that's just not a problem, but it's an issue. And uh, the, the, the Buddha doesn't say anything about it. Uh, the Dalai Lama doesn't like them very much. Uh, what, what do you say? Uh, I'd like to get the wisdom from what may have been the, what I consider one of the wisest men that ever lived. And then Aristotle. I'd ask him the same question I asked the Buddha. You've been around for 2,700 years. You've seen how your thoughts have un unfolded. We now have a democracy, which you felt was not, not the, what I, I forget where it is on your hierarchy, but it's like third, uh, the third, be third best kind of governance. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got the politics, uh, the, the metaphysics. Uh, what, if you were to re rewrite your great tomes, what would you say now? Right. Yeah. Where, give me that wisdom. Yeah, uh, I think the fourth person is Cassandra, the the, uh, the Trojan princess. Uh, oh, okay. yeah. She had the ability to foresee the future, and that's pretty tricky. I don't know that I want to know the future, <laughs> but there may be some pieces around it that I'd like to know. I'm getting old. I'm, I'm not going to live long enough to see how some of these things uh, work out, and so mm. maybe I want to know how it ends. Uh, uh, my next one is uh oh it's it's john wheeler or some physicist uh expert in quantum mechanics i mm. i, I want to understand that's crazy stuff man yeah i, I, I took quantum mechanics in, in college and i've studied it on my own since then but 
it, it, it's just such a weird reality. I need to understand more about it, not necessarily uh, the equations, because I, I, I got that kind of, well, what does it mean to have that kind of uncertainty underlie reality? Mm. And so those would be the five. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, you said the whole you can't deal with the future piece, but I think, didn't you say like in the 90s, you started really thinking about what the future is going to look like? I mean, I feel uh-huh. like there's some alignment there. So, <laughs> Gotcha. Well, here, here's the deal. I, it's actually turned out I'm, I'm batting over 90 percent, and I hope I'm not subject to hubris. I've, I've gotten <laughs> most of the predictions right. Yeah. But I've known that I could be wrong, and the amount of uncertainty is huge, and the data are not deterministic. And so there's always room for surprise, like the yeah. pandemic. I didn't predict any pandemic, yeah. uh, although I did say the viruses were one of the biggest threats to humans. Mm. Um, so uh, if you sit down with with Cassandra, she's going to tell you what's going to happen. Mm. And this is uh, this is the problem now. She was also cursed that nobody would believe her. And so um, she predicted the, the Trojan horse and she said it was human and nobody believed it. And so there you are. But now that I know that nobody believes her, I would know that I would not believe her and it would believe, it gets really complicated. For sure. But, but I have, I have been, you're, you're, that's a great point. I have been fascinated with the future and I have been, uh, insisting on predicting the future mm-hmm. and i've been i've been pretty right <laughs> but you know it's kind of like do you want to do you want to know the day you're gonna die i don't know that's mm-hmm. a great that's a great question yeah that's fair um last question is beyond the circle of life what do you know for sure what i know for sure is i don't know anything for sure mm. including the circle of life uh if you're buddhist or hindu uh they're all ramps and samsara and nirvana, right? If you're Christian or Muslim, it, death is not a basically not a thing. What you've got is not a circle at all, but a an infinite timeline or string. Um, and because you've got eternity uh, in both yeah. religions. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I when I when I think about when I think about your question. I am unable to come up with anything that I'm certain about. You've got multiple universes. You've got yeah. quantum mechanics. You've got all these things that even things like uh, the basic fundamental constants of physics can be true only for this billion years. And mm-hmm. then they're going to, it's just so short answer. I don't know anything. Yeah, you uh, you kind of got me on my last question there because I think I need to qualify a little bit when I say beyond the circle of life. I guess I meant in the physical being and realm and not necessarily be beyond that, right? Like in our current physical vessel, uh, we know that eventually one day we exit it. I mean, if, and then like you wisely pointed out in certain religions, you know, there's some sort of continuum that happens after. So um, good on you to, to, to point that part. I appreciate that. Um, Kit, this has been fantastic. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, it's it's an area that I, I always enjoy talking about and learning more about. And, and it sounds like you, you really have uh, dug into the research and encourage everyone to, to read your book. Where can folks find your book? Amazon. It's yeah. available on Kindle and uh, it's available on paperback. I have completed the recording for the audio book. Okay. And so what I need to do now is edit it and get it to Audible. Mm. So sometime in the next few weeks, I hope the audio book is going to be coming out. Uh, my website is www.pastsellbydate.com. There's a lot of information there. There's a, a summary of the book. There's uh, reviews of the book. And uh, my email address is kit at pastsellbydate.com. <laughs> Try that again. Kit at com. I will answer all constructive emails, and I'm looking forward to engaging in conversations on these things because I remain fascinated by them. That's awesome. I've heard that just doing the audio version of a book is, takes some time. Like, it's not an easy endeavor to do the audible. It's brutal. Yeah. It took, 
it took I don't even know how long uh, forty hours. Yeah. Maybe, okay. To do the recording and the editing and uh, and, and making sure that you, that you've got it right, it's it's a lot of work. Yeah, you're probably tired of hearing yourself by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'd imagine. Oh, goodness. Um, Kit, thank you so much again. We'll put all of Kit's information in our show notes. Um, and Kit's, you know, uh, said it already, but we'll put more of, of his links and such. Encourage you to read the book and encourage you to reach out uh, with some constructive emails. Thank you again, Kit, for joining us today. It was a pleasure and look forward to maybe talking to you in the future. I'd look forward to it and thank you very much. You're welcome. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us and uh, look forward to having you guys join us next time. Thanks. Bye.